Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, those who are sitting here in HubHub in Bratislava, and also those who are watching us online. Welcome to the second panel, I'm sorry. And the topic of the panel is the rise of the mobile bank only. But before we start, let me introduce our panelists. So from my right side is sitting Peter Strasovet from company Payout. Hello, nice to meet you. Next to him is sitting Philip Kowalt from company Crypto Fintech Citoaks. Yeah, it sells five bucks, but uh, hello, uh, but, uh, thank you for the invitation. And on the screen, we have Matteo Rizzi from consultation company FTS Group. Hello. Under him is František Junger from car company Visa. Under him, Jana Malčková from Fintech Everything. Before we started, Matteo Rizzi prepared a short presentation so we can start with it right now. Hi guys, my name is Matteo Rizzi. It's great to be here. Thank you, Peter, for uh, inviting me to this conference. And uh, I'm here to talk about the rise of the fintech hybrids. A couple of words about me. I have a weird combination of experience in between uh, uh, industry expertise. I worked 13 years at Swift. I co-founded something called InnoTribe, which is considered one of the pioneers of the fintech space. Uh, so pioneer that uh, we actually launched the first startup challenge uh, and the winner was TransferWise, uh, but also Revolut and Mambo and Currency Cloud. All these guys were really at the beginning of the journey when they sort of come to this, uh, to this initiative. I left Swift in 2013, became an investor with different funds, my own fund with Russian uh, uh, Sberbank uh, as a main uh, limited partner, but also Omidyar Network that is investing in, in Africa in financial inclusion and tech for good uh, uh, startups, as well as I helped uh, setting up a couple of corporate venture capital for large banks such as Societe Generale and uh, Intesa San Paolo. The fund was called Nevafin Ventures. Lastly, I have also a startup and ecosystem and entrepreneurship experience because I founded something called FTS Group, previously FinTech Stage, which is the boutique innovation consulting group that helps basically incumbents and traditional players uh, to get smarter about fintech. A couple of uh, context here. Uh, so um, everyone remembers when they were in 2008, uh, that Tuesday when the news uh, uh, came out. Uh, I was at Cybos in Vienna, I still remember, and that was the moment that everyone sort of recognizes uh, as the start of fintech. You know, I have a presentation called uh, The Game of Fintech Thrones, uh, and I usually say that uh, we awoke the dragon back then. That's the date when Lehman collapsed and uh, it started sort of uh, decomposing uh, the financial services industry in pieces where inefficiencies uh, started to be exploited by startups. And uh, so exploited that uh, this is probably the most shown slide uh, of the past 12 years, more or less. 
and this is actually the 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 website of Wells Fargo. You see that little red square that you see uh, top left is the logo of one of the largest bank in America. And slowly but surely, every single word in that website uh, was covered by startups that were, uh, of course, exploiting uh, the inefficiencies or the lack of agility of the bank in general, not just Wells Fargo, and uh, came up with a solution that was, uh, uh, you know, geared towards competing with them. And uh, and let's shift gears a little bit now. I don't know if you have seen the movie, uh, The Founder is the story of uh, Mr. Croc that sort of uh, took the idea for the do from the two guys that were actually, you know, doing these uh, burgers in an amazing way. And there is a moment in this movie uh, where Mr. Croc is talking to his lawyer and the lawyer says, uh, you know, you think you are in the burger business, but you're actually in the real estate business. And this is the moment where McDonald's started to um, buy the places and lease them back to the franchisees. Uh, and uh, the, the, the revenue and uh, the business of McDonald's started grew, to grow exponentially. So I want to talk about embedded finance. Uh, and embedded finance uh, is uh, basically uh, a business uh, that is incorporating uh, financial services uh, uh, in the payments or uh, credit or debit or insurance space uh, in a seamless uh, in a seamless way uh, putting the customer at the center and usually from a non regulated uh, place uh, so the the example i usually give it here is the example of uh, booking.com right so this is typically a platform that uh, used to be a travel platform that all of a sudden uh, became uh, uh, a payments credit collection platform uh, and potentially could start lending money to their accommodation uh, owners. Uh, and another example that we'll see later on is uh, Imagine a portal for uh, a ride-sharing app that all of a sharing app that all of a sudden becomes a financial services platform to finance the vehicle, to collect payments, or to give microcredit to their chauffeurs. So this is a shift that basically came from putting the institution to the center into putting the client into the center. So we are actually reaching out to the client uh, and her data to be able to exploit and build the financial services on top. Of course, PSD2 and open banking uh, were incredible drivers for uh, this type of application, embedded finance uh, to grow. And uh, Therefore, uh, we start having new players coming uh, into the space that are not only 
either startups or fintech startups or incumbents or traditional players. But all of a sudden, you have these very large corporations that uh, have uh, such a large history and uh, power on their clients, and they're super credible in cross-selling uh, new services. How big is this, is this market? So let's start uh, uh, giving a little, uh, uh, a little like series of numbers here. So today, if we put together the top 30 global bank and insurers, they have a market value of 3.6 trillion. By 2030, the embedded insurance lending and payments platforms together, they will represent twice as much. And uh, let's sort of double click on, on this. So today, consumer lending uh, typically is uh, planned to grow close to 10 times in the next five years, actually four, because we're already in 2021. But you can see that embedded insurance and payments are the markets that are growing the most, especially insurance. Why? Because insurance is the typical case where, you know, you take a uh, a set of clients that are already dealing with financial services, insurance are already regulated, uh, but typically uh, what they do is uh, they can be super easily embedded in uh, retail and uh, e-commerce. That's why these type of services uh, are growing so much. Uh, and by the way, this is not just a, a sort of a Western economies uh, type of play. This is an African startup, it's called Tap and Go. They are in Kigali, Rwanda. And they are, they are basically supplying uh, cards for uh, buses. You basically cannot take a bus in Kigali if you don't have this card. It's like the Oyster card for London or the Octopus card for Hong Kong, if you have been there. So these guys have together over a million cards in Kigali alone, and that is uh, four times the number of uh, uh, people with the bank account uh, in the capital. So the moment that uh, Tap and Go gives, uh, is given the permission to actually do payments and recharge their cards, uh, uh, not only to pay their buses, but also to do peer-to-peer -peer payment or merchant payments, they become not only the largest, fin the largest uh, fintech of the country, but as well the largest financial services player of the country. And this is uh, a, probably the, the iconic example of uh, where embedded finance can bring a, corpor a corporation or a non-financial services corporation, which is Grab. So uh, Grab started in 2012 as a ride-hailing company like Uber, but very quickly, four years later, they started a service called Grab Pay that basically allowed clients to pay the, uh, the drivers within, within the app. But all of a sudden they spin off and they started indeed uh, 
giving credits for vehicle leasing, microcredit to the shoppers, performing digital payments, doing digital payslips, doing insurance. So all of a sudden, Grab Finance spun off in 2018 and now became a unicorn. More recently, they actually sort of go a mile further in a, in a global agreement with, uh, with Singtel. So what is the monetization opportunity in uh, embedded finance? So we basically started by sharing APIs and uh, being able to typically, uh, you know, use the data of the clients to build basic services on, on the top you know, on the corporate side. And then what you do is that uh, you take a third party, typically a startup, uh, and then you implement a service uh, together. And the, the more services uh, you implement, the more data you get. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, these services can start to be even more targeted to, uh, to the right people. And all of a sudden, when you have an ecosystem of services as a corporate with most of your clients using one or all of them, then you can start cross-reference and leveraging services that basically are, are a virtual circle because the more your clients are using these value-added services, the more you can build. So I was asked to like uh, uh, take uh, 10 to 15 minutes uh, to do this presentation. So this is just a hint. I want you to leave with uh, the impression that there are uh, new players that are coming into the financial services ecosystem. And uh, also I see that uh, the, the sun is going down. So slowly but surely my image is getting darker and darker and darker. But uh, I will leave you with this uh, last message. Uh, always get out of your comfort zone and choose what is now the never normal, which is an expression that I love it uh, post-pandemic, uh, post uh, the world is not the same uh, and uh, the massive rise of uh, digital financial services uh, that brings new player into the, into the game is actually shifting uh, the collaboration to, to a new level. So I hope you enjoyed my presentation. Thank you for listening and uh, you know how to reach me at uh, there is also my book in the background of this uh, presentation as you know i'm a rebel but um, i made peace with it thank you very much thank you very much matteo for your presentation uh, i for me and i think for everyone it was very impressive uh, i like the numbers and everything and i have you were talking about a customer-centric model and I have one question to all panelists. Um, how should a user-friendly solution look in finance? We can maybe start with Mr. Strajovic. Thank you. So thank you, Matteo, very much for your presentation. The last slide with Never Normal was awesome. 
And uh, uh, as Martina mentioned earlier, uh, coming from payout, we are looking a lot on what should be the perfect solution for our customers for payments. And I did tell it already in a few presentations, like the payments in future will be invisible. Nobody will even know they are there, the companies in between. Everybody will be able not only to pay, but to do all the financial operations, trans trans sending money, lending money, paying for whatever he needs, without even knowing that something has to happen in between. That's, for example, why we are, since last two years, pioneering technologies for automated financing and automated transactions. So our clients can offer these to their customers using the being in the world of new normal, trying to have everything mobile first, automated, etc. And the customer, he doesn't even see what's in between. It's faster, smoother, and more secure than it was before. So that's the goal. Thank you, Sister Schwartz. Yeah, so, so the question was how to create a uh, simple, let's say, uh, entry point for, for customers. Um, so I think that the way how to do it is to just talk with your users and just ask if this solution or how it works is, is the easiest as, as it can be. Because we did the same. Um, I have a startup with, that is B2B focused, uh, based in Estonia. And I just and we are creating payment infrastructures for cryptocurrency companies. And um, I, I just saw that uh, in crypto space, it's the, the, the entry point to uh, DeFi or to buy cryptocurrency or to use NFT is just completely insanely hard for the new coming uh, users. So, so ju just how, how to do it is just talk to your users and just tr try out the um, new new things. Um, and and if I can follow up on the presentation, I think that the idea of opening APIs and opening data to third third parties are really really important. But um, lots of companies are, are struggling with that because if you think about it, to create some changes in banking, for example, um, it's really expensive. For example, the George application, I think that everybody knows that. Um, it doesn't really work perfectly. And uh, if bank would open their APIs, even though they open banking, they have done it, but uh, the APIs are just terrible, as I know from my partners. Um, you can build on top of that a really interesting uh, technology. So um, talk to your users and, and like open, open your data and uh, invite third parties to build some interesting uh, technologies on top of that. So may I ask just to, uh, the problem is that the API are not good created in banks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, lots of companies are just uh, having their dat data for themselves. For example, LinkedIn. Um, they are just closed source of information, even though it's your data, even though you, you know how, how much, like if you wrote someone a message, um, it's, it's your data. The, the thing that you wrote to them is, is your data. And uh, they have closed APIs that you cannot build any kind of technology on top of that. And if you would like to use some kind of, let's say, um, automatization for sales, um, which is quite popular. It's uh, not possible because they will block your account. So I think that they should more focus on uh, first, like making the product better, which is kind of hard for a big company because it's expensive and uh, 
And the, or the second, just like open your APIs and open your data and share it with the others. And you can also create some monetization. It's not that you will open your data and they will steal it from you. You can have a partnership that could uh, benefit both sides. So I think that, that that's the point. Thank you. Mattel, the stage is yours. And the question is the same. Uh, how should look user-friendly financial services? So, so to, to start to with, start guys, uh, I need to explain why, since I'm here, I did not uh, uh, sort of uh, run the presentation in, uh, in person. And the reason was that I was supposed to be in Brazil uh, and it was like super early, so I pre-recorded it. But then, unfortunately, I, you know, something happened that I couldn't make the the, the conference out there. So, at the meantime, it was too late to arrange things differently. So, that's why it's a bit weird to see yourself recorded and all of a sudden be uh, in a panel uh, in a panel in person. So, this being said, because that would be a question that I would have asked <laughs> if I would be, you know, in the in the shoes of the of the public, uh, basic financial services. Uh, so the access, the perfect access, access to uh, uh, to financial services is the one that doesn't seem like one. So the more the more digitized are uh, payments and uh, and uh, financial services applications, the more they become uh, like water or electricity. So very soon, uh, no one uh, will be willing to do anything to pay something, right? Uh, it, it should be an experience that goes, uh, you know, that is uh, like a gesture, a gesture of, of, uh, of every day. Now, this is obviously uh, not going to be possible for all financial services, but the truth is uh, that uh, with the, the uh, the smart treatment uh, and uh, and the richness of the data that we are exchanging every day with our behavior and with our you know with the, the non-structured data that we produce uh, every day very soon uh, the, you know the the machines uh, and and the non-physical experience uh, would be actually the largest part of uh, our interaction uh, with uh, with finance that's my consideration. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you mentioned the data. And for example, today, banks have a lot of data. But uh, when we look on some banks' products, they are not customer-centric. And do you see that there is exactly the opportunity, let's say, on, for some partnership with fintechs? It's this is, this is you. Is that is that me, Martina? This is the this is the name of the game. You just you just mentioned the very reason why there are uh, over fifty fintech ecosystems in fifty different countries in the planet, and also the reason why all the banks started by fearing startups, and ten years later they are all collaborating because they finally realized that. Uh, they can't they can't beat uh, sort of third parties uh, collaboration by trying to do things themselves and this is true is is becoming uh, it, it it's a 
it is now a no-brainer, this, uh, this collaboration effect. Uh, in some cases, uh, there is a little bit of the still the not invented here syndrome, as, uh, as we say, but uh, I, I, I see very little success stories uh, when uh, large institutions try to do things themselves. M Marcus, uh, you know, the, 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 the credit platform in the, in the, in the UK uh, from Goldman, I think is probably the exception. I think it's good. Thank you very much. Now, Mr. Junger, uh, the question on you, uh, same like for other panelists, how should look customer-centric, user-friendly financial service? So, so I'm, I'm probably in, in between what my colleagues uh, were actually saying, you know, I, obviously we aspire to have a seamless payments uh, and something which happens in the background uh, invisibly and that's probably as good UX as it can get. Uh, but uh, for me, being in the payments for many years, this is still something which will take years to happen. And we need to take in consideration, you know, not everybody is tech savvy, not everybody is digital savvy, etc. So obviously fintechs are established in that space and they are being very active in that space and they are aspiring as well as visa eventually is aspiring to have a seamless payments happening in the background and with some types of payment this is already happening but for some types of payments actually uh, people are not ready consumers are not ready for seamless payments they want the control you know uh, as much control as some paying with cash and as much control as some people actually having additional control mechanisms before they make the payment itself. So maybe that's just a sh short reflection on kind of having a totally seamless payments, which probably sometimes in the future definitely will happen in some industries and some consumer groups, it will happen much faster than with the others, but then we will have the long tail, which will actually take years before we get to something as extreme uh, as uh, kind of a seamless payment happening. But for, for me, the, the user friendliness comes from the UX and the UX uh, by that, I don't just mean, you know, having a seamless payment. It's about the UX, which fits into the group, which we, I am focusing at. So if I'm a FinTech, if I'm a startup and I'm focusing on millennials, I'm focusing on digital savvy customers, etc. obviously it's all about making it seamless, making it happening background, you know, having a very simplified way of doing things, uh, kind of complicating functionalities simplified, which I think FinTech have made uh, in the last years uh, very good progress in, something which traditional banks haven't been able to progress as quickly. And, and we as a Visa, we stand somewhere in between, you know, we cooperate with traditional banks, so those are traditional clients, uh, and we cooperate with FinTechs on the other side. Uh, so often we try to make this bridge between, you know, leaping too far away and, and bringing up new technologies, but also staying on the ground, making sure that, you know, the UX is there, the, the, the experience is great, but at the same time, we need to not to forget about security and, uh, and all that related to, to payments and uh, payments infrastructure overall. So I think it's about finding the right balance between the, you know, extremely easy UX but also still feeling secure on the other side, which for some 
consumer groups like millennials might be much more towards the UX and the convenience. And for some more traditional clients, it might be still more on the kind of security side, being sure that it's them making the payment, they are aware of making the payments, uh, uh, etc. Thank you very much. And now Mrs. Malachkova, the <laughs> questions is same. How should look user-friendly customer-centric financial service? It's always relative to the users it, themselves and who they are, as it has already been said. So I would make it very short. It's about the pure research and retesting. And you really need to know who your customers are. And then you build the product for them based on what they say. Thank you very much. Uh, in your answers, I heard a lot of mention, many times were mentioned data. And I'd like to ask you um, how you work in data, with data in your company. Starting to Mrs. Yes, you start, Mr. Strzewski. Uh, with, with data, we work as any other regulated from whatever points of view, GDPR, banking regulation, or other uh, companies. We use the data as much as we can. We secure them as much as we can. And if we don't need them, we delete them. So it's, it's, tough. it's tough working with data from all the security perspectives. Whenever we need to involve third parties, like Philip mentioned that it has to be a way how to open data, but still it has to, re to remain as secure as possible. So we are utilizing data first for security of the transactions itself. Second, for evaluating uh, financial aspects, cost optimization, etc. And last but not least, for all the benefits for clients themselves to be able to bring them better user experience, better transactional experience. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to ask you, we were talking before the conference started that uh, about how difficult it's for you to, let's say, ch change something instead of when it's a bank is doing. Uh, do you think that the, it's easier also for you, like for small fintech to work with data than bank, which has a lot of data, much more than fintechs have, but they don't work with them so effectively like fintech do? I, I wouldn't necessarily name that they don't work so effectively as we do. We have much more narrow focus. We focus on only fractional parts of operations compared to a bank who has dozens of products, etc. So we are able to go deeper in uh, and being faster in the terms of either using data or evolved things. On the other hand, bank has significantly more data than we do, so they can elaborate on much better statistics or usage of the data. So it's, it has two sides. For us, we could be faster, and usually we are. On the other hand, if we need to know more, then it's more tough problem for us than for a bank who has much more information about clients or about whole ecosystem of transactions in given territory. Thank you so much. Mr. Claude, I'd like to ask you because uh, your fintech uh, is crypto fintech uh, and the work with data uh, is probably different than in classical payment fintech. Uh, how do you work with data and also how do you co how do you comply with the regulation yeah um 
thanks for the question. So, so, so the way how we did it is that we have developed a tool how to buy cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin with traditional finances like Euro, GBP, Czech Crown, and you can buy it with your credit card. So it is like the easiest way how to buy cryptocurrency these days. So uh, we solved one problem, but... Um, and, and by the way, regarding the regulations, uh, we choose uh, Estonia to be licensed there because uh, let's say that the regulations are there a lot better. So um, regarding the data, uh, the, the thing that we did is that we have opened our APIs to any kind of company to use our tool because uh, users really liked it. So we said, okay, let's try to make a business on it. On it. So so. Now, we changed the focus to be to be when when the widget can be integrated into crypto exchanges, cryptocurrency wallets, um, DeFi projects, and and etc. etc. And uh, but but still the the data. I would like to follow up on the question. Um, like if you would like to do the same approach as we did, the security is number one key priority. And uh, this is also like where we are um, or, or where I am pushing our developers that uh, the security is the, is the biggest and, and most important thing. But um, as, as, I, as I got the feedback from our, our partners, it's um, amazing that they didn't have to develop this kind of tool by themselves because it's costly. There are lots of, let's say, frauds. We take care of all of that um, and uh, we just take care of all the things that they would have to do. And uh, yeah, so, so it works, but security is important. Thank you so much. Um, Matteo Rizzi, uh, I have on you a bit different question uh, because your FTS group is a consultation company and I'd like to ask you uh, when you work with fintechs and banks and other financial companies, uh, where are they struggling the most in the work with data or in uh, which field they are not effective? So, so the the answer is actually different uh, according to which stakeholder we are talking about, because of course uh, startups are uh, built on data, especially the ones that are, uh, as I was saying in the presentation, uh, exploiting uh, the inefficiencies of uh, larger uh, financial institutions typically in the credit space, uh, for example, to, to, use, uh, to use an environment that uh, everyone, everyone understands. So basically the opportunity on one side, so to, to be like a data crunch, data crunching native, uh, being able to experiment and to be very agile in a way that uh, basically data talk to the, to the application are actually the difficulties on the other side, where uh, the amount of data is uh, incredibly large. But at the same time, it's not because you hire like a 20 data scientists that you can uh, uh, all of a sudden make uh, make a sense out of it. Why? Because on one side, there are these legacy systems. So just to extract the data and be able to make uh, some sense out of them uh, is, already, is already a challenge. Uh, but also because uh, there are dependencies, you know, from uh, resources inside large organizations that make things not, not easy. So um uh, on the other on the other hand the easiness for uh, a, a a large uh, financial institutions in in dealing with data is that uh, once they uh, once they reach a proper uh, internal organization and now 
I don't know if you have seen it, but uh, there are companies like, I don't know, HP, uh, HPE or NVIDIA, they actually made the collaboration, for example. I'm, I'm mentioning it because I happen to, to talk about this in, in, uh, in, in my podcast. And uh, they, they were saying that, uh, you know, many, many companies now, they need uh, a sort of uh, philosophy, uh, a philosophy uh, about the data approach. And uh, almost if uh, part of the initial work that is uh, necessary to make sense of AI and data, because data themselves are actually the, the raw material, right? Then is the intelligence that you apply on top that uh, uh, that makes the difference in terms of how effective is the application going to be or, or, the, or the business service. And uh, they were saying that their challenge is actually that uh, IT infrastructure and uh, developers very often are two very different entities. So the research, the data scientist part, uh, needs to talk uh, with the, 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 the infrastructure CIO, uh, is the CIO versus CTO, you know? And, and sometimes uh, there are like ownership problem in large organizations, which is of course the opportunity in this case for, uh, for, the, small, uh, for the small startups where uh, these type of silos are non-existent. Thank you very much. Mr. Junger, uh, I'd like to ask also you how you work in Visa with data because Visa is, of course, one of the biggest fintech in the world. So what's your approach? Uh, I'm, I'm glad, you, glad are you are putting us in the fintech category. Uh, we are not always associated with that, even that we believe that uh, definitely part of what we do is very much in the fintech space. Uh, you're right. I, I think uh, who knows Visa uh, knows that we process uh, our, and through our systems uh, um, enormous amount of data goes every day in the peaks. Actually, we have 65,000 transactions a second coming through the system. Uh, uh, and uh, obviously, it, then it's a, a lot of responsibility and it's also a lot, a lot of security. How do we actually keep the data? How do we secure the data? But most importantly, how do we eventually use the data? So it's again, safe and secure for everybody. So uh, we work with the data uh, uh, quite extensively. Uh, we use with the data uh, uh, majority of the cases in aggregated and anonymized uh, state. Uh, uh, but because of the amount of data we have, we can actually derive many trends and uh, uh, and um, kind of sayings on what will happen and what is happening. So the data are very much important for us. And I, I very much support what Matteo said, you know, uh, it's not about the data you have, it's about how do you work with this data. Uh, and and uh, in recent years, Visa have developed so-called data science centers across the globe. We have one locally in Warsaw as well, which supports uh, Central and Eastern Europe, which exactly has this 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 clear purpose: is to you know how do we actually translate all the data we have in some usable information? And just a couple of things, you know, how how we are using the data as a Visa. So by the, looking at the data, we can obviously help our clients 
issuers, uh, banks, uh, uh, to set up the products more accurately, to target the right audience, to, to based on the behavior of a certain group, we can say what the needs for such a product should be. We can advise merchants uh, where they should open new store because we see where the traffic goes and uh, where there is a lot of shopping in certain segments and sectors. Uh, but we also help governments to monitor trends, for example, during the COVID. So what was happening during the, you know, when the COVID have started, how the transaction and the behavior have shifted from the face-to-face -face environment into e-commerce environment. So those are just few examples how the data can be used, but everything which we do, we are basing on data. So if I understand well, Visa is not anymore just payment company, but you are also doing consultation services based on your data from the payments. Exactly, exactly as you are saying. saying you know, I, think, I think many people, many people still, still sees us as a, as a, as a, as a pure, pure payment, payment company, company or, or some even, some say, even credit say credit, credit card, card company. Uh, but uh, since, you know, I would say last decade, we are much more than that. Uh, and we have become active in many areas where uh, general consumers or even our clients didn't see us, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And this is exactly, you know, it's about using the data to a certain extent, monetizing the data as well, but using the data responsibly with our clients uh, as it needed providing consultancy services uh, and again not just in the payment industry but in the kind of finance or banking industry overall uh, using the data i think we have much more to offer uh, uh, and much more to solve uh, uh, with having millions billions of transaction in 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 our systems uh, which we can utilize to make actually the right decision so yes you, you are right we definitely shifted from being a pure payment company providing rails for uh, for payments in general to 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 company which operates in many sectors including consulting including data uh, and being i think very active in the fintech space as well working with uh, fintechs very closely mr strachowicz if i may add a little bit on this what uh, francisek mr Junger said this is a very good example of what we have been asking earlier versus banks and their data as us, as payout being an emerging uh, leader in AML security for transactions in Central and Eastern Europe, we have a deep insight into the merchants, into the ecosystem of what our clients are doing. But on the other hand, we rely a lot on Visa and their data because they have the broad idea of not only the card, the tokens, and all the information. And it's only the cooperation between uh, Visa as an acquirer, as a platform, as a company, and their data, and us to provide a full scope security. So this is already happening, what you have been asking earlier. Thank you very much. Uh, if everyone, any other from panelists want to say something, just ask for the word. So now a question for Jana Malečková. Uh, <laughs> they are working with data is almost core business of everything. And I have a question on you uh, when you are taking data from banks for your clients mostly, uh, where are you struggling the most uh, when you are connecting to API of banks? If I should talk about the data uh, in relation to fintechs, I would maybe point out that it's the first time in the history when we as a regulated party 
uh, are very much dependent on the quality of the PSD2 API data that banks are providing to us. So it's important to say that, however, we would like to be as much innovative as, as we can be uh, based on our research. It always uh, is about the quality of the data that we get from the banks. And yes, you are right that um, data across Europe that we get from the banks have really uh, different quality. And I would maybe talk about three groups of banks uh, that we currently see in Europe. So the first group of banks is, uh, is the group uh, which still denies PSD2 and their APIs are uh, not compliant with the law. Uh, then the second group, uh, those are the banks that already accept, either voluntarily or uh, they might be forced by the regulators. And the third group of the banks are already searching for the opportunities. And if we have to talk about data quality, it, we also have to mention that it's also on the shoulders of the regulators. And here I would also divide regulators into three different groups, like those who, uh, let's say, still are not aware of their new role or when the PSD2 has come into full force uh, uh, in September 2019. Then there are regulators that already are active. They are willing to communicate. They know what or they are trying to find out the ways how to how to grasp this uh, new role and the third group of regulators are those who are already doing some oversight processes um, because uh, they receive the reports uh, on psd2 obstacles that fintechs have reported to them and if i we've been uh, in 16 countries so far uh, we have the contact with 16 countries so i can say if you if you would like to to get maybe some more details i would say that also you were saying where we are struggling the most it's the czech republic uh, where the banks where we in, where we found out the most psd2 uh, obstacles and we have reported them to, them to the regulator, but we don't see any reaction, any communication. Uh, whereas on the other markets, uh, we get the, we even have the results where the obstacles were removed uh, or the oversight processes started and it's in the process. So you see that regulators are active. So we are really dependent on the banks and the regulations. Uh, thank you very much. You mentioned Czech Republic and now we are in Slovakia. So I'd like to ask you about Slovakia regulator because you have also the license from Slovakia. So maybe you can tell your experiences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the so National Bank of Slovakia has the FinTech team. I find people, they're very active. Uh, they are willing to talk, discuss and are themselves proactively, you know, want they, they are proactively already mm, doing the oversight and they recently created or included the technical skills in, uh, in, the, in the team. 
So it's not just about the legal skills, but also technical. It's very important once you you have the fintech on the call that is speaking very technical language, and on the other side there are only legal legal people. So we really appreciate that we see they incorporated this technical knowledge in the team. We see in Romania it's happening the same, or in Belgium as well. Um, so. I think um, Slovakia is a good place to, to be regulated and the things are moving forward. Very much. Mr. Kovar, I have a question on you. You have applied for license in Estonia. Uh, why in Estonia? Yeah, um, so um, we, I have uh, I asked the same question to our partners, like uh, when we talked about how we are building the architecture of banks and financial institutions in our system. I asked, I just simply asked them what they would like to uh, do from from our company. Um, we had several options. We had the option in Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, uh, UK, uh, Lithuania, Malta, and Estonia. So after some research, we have managed to came to came to conclusion that Estonia will be the best place because it allows us to work with a number of banking partners. We are just under a microscope of regulations uh, where we uh, the regulators are just very strict, which is being uh, which is like a good thing to have when you have banking partners. And maybe if I can just uh, add one thing, I would like to ask uh, Jana, uh, based on the thing that you said before. You said that your solution is linked to the quality of the data that bank is providing to you, and that there are three types of, um, let's say, approaches. So how are you solving the issue if someone don't want to open their data or they don't want to make some adjustments? Uh, do you talk to them or like, uh, are you just saying, okay, if you don't want to do this, bye-bye, uh, I will go to some uh, other party. First, we First talk we with talk the support team of the banks. Uh, there are banks that are very active uh, and even in Slovakia, I, I, I remember three banks that were able to, uh, to remove the obstacle within one week or sometimes two weeks if it was more more difficult uh, and but we also have cases in which the banks uh, do not want to cooperate uh, and in that case you only have the possibility to talk to the regulator of course the regulator always is asking about uh, how, how was how was the communication with the bank so far so we uh, file those communication communications to have the proof uh, that we were trying really hard uh, to explain and to came to the conclusion. And in this case, then I see a Slovak uh, regulator, National Bank of Slovakia, that I see there are ongoing, it's like a two way of communications that they first talk to us uh, to understand the problem, then they talk to the banks and um, even they organize the, mm, the communication or, the, or they ask the banks to organize the calls with us so we can again talk and come to the consensus. But if the consensus is not coming out of the discussion, then we just close it and say the regulator has to, has to decide. 
Um, we see this approach also with other regulators in, in Europe, but if I should be talking about uh, the case in Czech Republic, for example, very, very, I mean, specific, um, there are banks that are ref refusing PSD2, or they are uh, not, or refusing to, to repair the obstacles that we have reported. But on the other hand, also the regulator is not very communicative. Uh, they say that they are not allowed to talk to us or they are not allowed to inform us about the process. And uh, so it's been already a couple months since we've been in, um, in this process. We were advised to contact the Czech Banking Association, for example. Uh, I don't really understand why we should talk to this uh, association because they even told us that we don't have a license, which is not true. We transported the, the license to all EEE to all EEA countries, and still uh, we it's it's been four months and we still don't have any contact point uh, on, in the Czech Republic. So this is the problem that once you know the P if the PSD2 framework is not set in the local uh, regulatory institution, then it's becoming a problem because we really don't have a higher instance to go somewhere to you know to make a complaint because European Central Bank is oversighting the central banks, but if the central if, if the national bank has a problem, we don't have anybody to talk to. So this is a problem that should be really discussed on the European level, how these things uh, can be solved. And also, it's always important to remember that once there is a discussion or dispute about some obstacle, it's always the people that are, it's always about the people, how they translate or how they explain the, the situation. And as we know, people do make mistakes, and I'm. I we haven't had this situation, but at the moment there are currently uh, there are some oversight processes going on, and I'm just a bit afraid that if the national regulators do not have enough skills to you know to translate all these EBA opinions that have been published for the different kind of obstacles. If, if the local regulator doesn't have enough skills to assess it properly, it can happen that the uh, decisions might be made wrong. And what in that case, uh, can we go to a higher, higher institution to, you know, it's like, it's similar with the court. Like if you have a problem, you go to the court and then you have other instances to you know, maybe try to 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 come to the correct decision. Thank you very much, Jana. Peter Strezovec, on to answer. I may build a little bit on what Jana described and on your question. For us, as if I consider uh, if I consider Finas or Payout as vivid actively fintech companies who try to deliver to our clients as soon as possible. Like our uh, our delivery to market time to delivery is very short compared to bank. And uh, it's true that if there are countries like Czech, for example, we need either to fold it to answer your question or to find a business way how to bypass it 
to satisfy our customers. The regulatory wouldn't help, and at least, I, I don't know how for peanuts, but for payout doing a talk with regulatory who is not responding is so long that we wouldn't resolve the thing. But we can see in uh, European Central Bank, this being uh, touched as a major topic, because if you, if many of you are involved in uh, central bank digital currencies, where it's a big question of what should be the role of banks if central bank would issue two currencies, and especially a uh, few forums on, the, uh, on European level are touching the topic of PSD2, that many countries, the national banks or the banks there, don't apply it correctly, and they should be skipped. So they are reflecting this, so it would move. I would just maybe add that, uh, like, thanks for thanks for uh, explanation and uh, for answering the question. Uh, that's something that I really don't understand because the reason why they should do it, at least from my perspective, is that it brings a lot of money, lots of business, lots of companies can go to this country where they are they have open PSD two, and uh, as Matteo said, the market is incredibly big, so. Uh, that's, for example, the reason why we have moved from Czech Republic to Estonia and uh, we are doing business there and not in Czech Republic. So, yeah, maybe this is so, like, that a huge problem that maybe someone should, like, do something about it. So, so uh, once again, thank you a lot. I have a question to Matteo, Ritzi. Uh, I would like to ask you, you mentioned that uh, fintech is really rapidly evolving, but do you think, according to your previous speakers, uh, like now, they mentioned that regulators make some obstacles and problems. Do you think that this is the, it what slows a bit fintech evolution, the regulation, the wrong attitude of regulators? No, I think, no, it's, I think an it's an excuse. The, 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 I, I do sort of uh, follow the, 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 uh, the regulators' conversation since... Uh, probably 2009, when they were completely sort of caught by surprise by this amount of innovation coming. And of course, you have to think that the fintech ecosystem rapidly evolved in all directions, you know, so, and all of a sudden you needed new regulation for capital markets, you know, identity, usage of data, customer onboarding, uh, uh, you know, GDPR, uh, and then all the, the obligation that uh, went on the top of it, and then open banking. I think that uh, uh, regulators in general, they have done an excellent work in trying to cope, because it is always easy to, uh, to uh, sort of to, to blame them. But I think that uh, uh, the uh, blaming the regulation for this law on putting obstacles, it was in part uh, a way to mask the inefficiency or the, the, the you know, or the slowliness in adapting uh, on, the, on the bank and more like traditional player uh, side. I think that the, 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 what you say, so the regulator being uh, sort of uh, not collaborating uh, uh, too much is maybe more truth in emerging markets. And uh, in, I, I do invest in emerging markets since 2015. 
uh, you know, with the Omidia Network, uh, and then we collaborated with the Gates Foundation and now with Bamboo Capital. So uh, there are a few ecosystems that uh, uh, that I can say I know decently, uh, decently well. And it is true that uh, the regulators need to be educated. And sometimes uh, they sort of take advantage of the fact that, uh, uh, again, in some emerging markets, uh, banks have all interest of this innovation evolution being being slow because they are still in a uh, unlike europe uh, they are still in a sort of a uh, in, in a position of uh, of strength uh, but in general you know now there are uh, there is a recipe to make uh, any ecosystem uh, work and is uh, and is uh, you know ecosystem learn from each other and there are ways to make regulators talk with startup and banks uh, and the technological players that, you know, now that we talk about embedded finance, uh, uh, there are even new players that will need to follow or not into the regulation, uh, as well as the whole like a DeFi space that opens up uh, a Pandora's box in terms of, uh, you know, uh, just think of the of the fiscal uh, repercussions, you know, on being able to fund uh, anything anywhere, which is the promise of uh, of DeFi. So yeah, I I think that uh, it is always has to be taken as uh, as an opportunity rather than uh, than an excuse to being slower than possible. Thank you very much. Uh, I just like to mention that. Uh, or attendees can ask via Slido. We have no question yet, so if you want to ask something, don't hesitate. Uh, I have uh, another question for our speakers, for our panelists. Uh, I love the example with Booking.com, which uh, Matteo mentioned in his presentations. Um, do you think, and maybe it's for all panelists, your opinion, that uh, the future of fintech will be in kind of collaboration between fintech, between banks, and between the companies from non-financial um, environment. Okay. You can start. Uh, I actually love the slide of Matteo describing either booking or the taxi versus uh, paying a car for the driver, etc. Because this is exactly what is happening during last couple of few years, not necessarily related to COVID or whatever, but the huge automation growing. And the requirements on the market, not only to be able to rent a flat, to have a platform for lending houses, but also to provide their shopping, like you come there, you have some shopping there, flowers, whatever, which implicates additional payments. And in past, it was done over phone. You asked for flowers or bottle of champagne to be waiting in your hotel room or in your Airbnb. Nowadays, you can check it somewhere in the checkbox and it's delivered as a service. And still, in many cases, it's paid automatically afterwards. That the, the merchant is receiving the money, but then he's executing it manually. And this is what was happening during a couple of past years that this part is also automated. The money flow follows the business flow. So whenever it is automated from the client from the customer towards the one who is offering the service or product. Also, the money is further transferred automatically. Services are paid instantly. 
partners are paid instantly, additional services are added as a value for the customer and paid instantly. And thanks to the tools that either Payout or many other fintech companies provide, this is happening now. So I think these are good examples and it is what is happening on the market. Thank you very much. For you, Mr. Kovac, it's the same question, but uh, one added question, uh, what's the role of crypto in this financial evolution? Yeah, um, so, so as I see the banking in the future, I think that, uh, let's say in the 10 years, it will be just the backbone of the financial system and the front end and uh, financial instruments will be done by fintechs because they can better reflect the user needs. But uh, to, to, to the question of, of cryptocurrency, of course, I, I'm, I'm in crypto space for six years, so I kind of believe that it will be part of the future. But uh, first, maybe I would like to start with, uh, in, 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 the, in the beginning, it was just an experiment. Um, this, is, this was the reason why Bitcoin has started. And now, yeah, it seems that it's becoming popular more and more. So I think that uh, it shows that alternatives like uh, overcome the biggest issue with cross-border cross payments. Like if you want to send money to third countries, uh, it can take up to six days. You can pay more than 15, 16%. It's not that efficient. Um, so with cryptocurrencies, you can you can do it like instantly with no human uh, power to do to do so. With transparency, you can see the total volume, the total depth. You can see lots of things. And I think that the the most interesting thing right now in the cryptocurrency space regarding the fintechs is the DeFi. It's the decentralized finance, which is like financial instruments built, let's say, in a cryptocurrency ec ecosystem. And uh, I think that. Let's look maybe look at the numbers. Like in in year 2020, the volume of the DeFi was around 600 million. In the January this year, it was around 20 billion, and today it's around I think uh, 300 billion dollars. So so like I see that uh, it's bec it's becoming the trend. But I don't I don't know if this will overcome uh, or overtake the financials. But I think that. Lots of companies can take an inspiration from this. And I think that there will be some kind of collaboration between banks and or maybe central banks and uh, DeFi's. So let's see. Let's see. But, but it is true that uh, it's becoming, I guess, a trend. May I just uh, ask, you mentioned those huge big numbers. Uh, how much do you think is really in project and how much do you think is an investment in crypto? Yeah. So as I as I mentioned, like uh, 600 or 300 billions are in uh, in DeFi's, but of course, like the majority is just an investment, and like people are going into cryptocurrency just because like they saw it in the news that it's going up and they want to be part of the big. Um, <coughs> let's say uh, they they just want to make make money because other people are saying that yeah, in one month I have made 30 percent. But still, there is a part of people that are using this as a uh, tool, how to lend money, how to borrow money, uh, how to have some kind of, kind of annual profit from the money that they have. But I think that uh, the reason why there is not so many use cases is that because the entry point to cryptocurrency space is really, really hard. If you like, if I would. You, you, you can consider like easy entry point to some kind of new technology when some small kid can do it. 
or like let's say my brother that is eight years old he wouldn't be able to buy anything on DeFi because it's just completely like insanely hard so and this was the reason why we have created the company because i think that there can be lots of use cases that can let's say be an inspiration for banks and can show how an alternative can work so so we have developed a entry point to this world that is incredibly easy and my brother can use it so so uh yeah there is zero question about crypto future. Uh, every central bank, European central bank, Riesbank, Bank, which is the oldest central bank in Sweden, each of them has crypto, either DeFi or either central bank uh, digital currency on their pipeline. They are working with it. So it will happen. Just it's question how it would be. If it will be central bank, DeFi, mix, we will see. Thank you. Matteo Rizzi, I'd like to ask you, you mentioned in your presentation this example with Kigali, it's in Africa, but where do you see the opportunities in Europe? Because still in Africa is much more unbanked population than in Europe where financial services work quite well and we don't struggling with sending money and etc. The challenge of uh, financial inclusion is uh, something that is uh, absolutely relevant for Europe as well. Only you need to talk about financial literacy instead of financial inclusion. Even if uh, until uh, three years ago, there were 2 million people without a bank account in the UK, and there is still a decent, uh, a decent portion of population without bank account, the the fact of having you know purely digital uh, uh, banks with free accounts of course helped a lot but it's not because you have a bank account that you are financially savvy or financially included there are of course cultural differences uh, and uh, the fact that uh, uh, you know in in uh, in europe you can say that uh, someone is not financially included if he doesn't have a bank account this is uh, absolutely not true in emerging markets because you have mobile wallet you have plenty of ways to be digitally financially included without having a bank account so since you ask what is the opportunity or the challenge for for europe is actually financial literacy so is the fact that uh, uh, of course uh, uh, large financial institutions on one side are focusing on uh, between the mass affluent uh, and uh, the, the, the affluent clients, because these are the ones that are uh, sort of uh, bringing revenues. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, there is this uh, rush to get the maximum number of clients uh, on the digital banks, uh, the digital, the, the neobank, as, as you can call it. Uh, uh, but uh, once they have a critical mass, then they will start by monetizing these clients because at the moment, uh, you know, market cap might be uh, amazing, but uh, the path to, profit to profitability is, uh, is still unclear. And I think that, uh, you know, being financial, financially included uh, with the lens of financial literacy is uh, being able to have an approach to money, savings, credits, uh, that actually it is uh, sustainable. This is where 
these were the opportunities. And, and is everyone's job to bring that literacy uh, into Western economies, where, of course, the possibilities and the way to reach the clients uh, is, uh, uh, is much easier, of course, because channels are there, because, you know, there is no rural areas, you know, think of a country like, uh, you know, Mozambique. Mozambique is uh, like 60 million people, 80% living in a rural area, uh, insurance penetration less than 1%. So, you know, this challenge is completely different from uh, any European country where the context is completely, is completely different. And yet, yet, you might have uh, a uh, a very big coverage in terms of uh, who has a bank account, uh, whether or not it's with the, like a traditional or, or a neobank, but still uh, there is a decent portion of population that uh, uh, don't know how to manage their, their finance. And that leads to the same consequence of, uh, uh, um, or the same problems or, or issues than uh, people in, in emerging markets because at the end of the day, became non they become non-financiable or very little financiable, therefore with a minor possibility to, uh, uh, with a less important possibility to grow. Very much. Maybe uh, I would be interested about the answer on this question from Mr. Junger, because Visa is also a multinational company. So maybe where you see those opportunities in Europe? Oh, so, oh, looking, so at looking at it from, at it from two angles. Two angles. Uh, one is, One the, is borrowing the borrowing part, uh, and I think this is very important because we have seen uh, a kind of an increase of interest of, uh, I would say, traditional banks based on the fact that uh, many fintechs have been uh, activated in this space. Klarna, Charge After, you, you, there are many of them in this sky now, pay layers, so who have created more very more need uh, uh, for uh, deep diving into this topic uh, on its own. And uh, uh, here we see the totally different approach from the traditional kind of banks, which usually have a quite a robust and conservative risk departments, uh, some less, some more. They have legacy systems, which are difficult to upgrade, the, and few other which are of them to move more or differently into the space of buy now, pay later. Another one might be a credit card. On at the same time, offering the same functionality as the fintech loans currently are offering. So I think where the is actually working between uh, the fintechs who have actually made less and less conservative risk appetite, uh, uh, they also, they have, also a have a pos possibility, possibility to be, to more, be more aggressive, aggressive when, it when it comes to, to uh, uh, upgrading, upgrading their systems and, and uh, providing, providing some, some uh, high-tech high solutions. solutions. Uh, 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 so, so I see that there, that is, there is an opportunity for the fintechs to provide the, the, the backends, backends and backbones uh, solutions uh, to, uh, to, to, to traditional, traditional banks. banks. But, but the, 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 the challenge, challenge will, be will be how the risk, risk appetite, appetite of the traditional, traditional players, players will be willing, willing to accept it. 
I think that's, I think that's kind, of kind of something to, to, to still tackle, still tackle. Uh, and, uh, I think and I think this will definitely, will definitely be something which will slow down the development going, over going over to the future. To the future. Thank you very much. Uh, I have last question for all panelists. Uh, COVID changed really a lot of customer ex behavior, also the customer experience. So I ask everyone for 30 seconds answer, uh, where do you see the biggest opportunities according to current cir circumstances and current customer experience and expectations in the financial industry? Let's start with Peter Strachowicz and all speakers. 30 seconds, you say. 30 seconds. COVID was a big change for small ones. They needed smooth service, remote service, not coming to open an account, not coming to sign, everything remote and everything flawless. And for corporates, on the other hand, the new normal in uh, working with their teams and with their clients, again, implicated a requirement for new, new set of tools, new set of products, which FinTech was glad to provide. This is our experience growing during 2020 to 2021 from hundreds of thousands monthly of transactions to tens of millions monthly because of the demand for new products. So it is here and it's us to satisfy it. Thank you very much, Mr. Coat. Yeah, um, so I think that uh, like COVID boosted the things that the people are doing at home. So I think that everybody now should focus on making, for example, the UX UI really, really simple so the users can do everything uh, simply from, from their homes. So, so, so that, that's it, I guess, from me. Like in cryptocurrency space, of course, it boosted a lot, but uh, like we are still the same community without any changes because of the COVID, I would say. Thank you very much. Matteo Ricci? For me, for it, me is really it is about really about the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity, the opportunity that, that uh, the, the mental, mental uh, digital uh, leap of uh, the large population will make uh, the, the the will make uh, some of the verticals, you know, in, in in financial services that are still very little digitized, uh, will will make uh, an, an the, the innovation uh, and accelerated innovation possible. I'm thinking, uh, for example, uh, uh, in the in the prop tech space or real estate space uh, adjacent to uh, to fintech, uh, the asset tokenization. So before people were hesitant, you know, in uh, when uh, such a big critical uh, sort of financially important uh, uh, business. Uh, uh, you know, to deal with it uh, in a, in a non-in-person environment. I think that uh, there will be a lot of new opportunities that uh, this uh, digital uh, uh, leapfrog in terms of mentality of the population uh, COVID has brought. Mr. Junger? I think I, I think will partly, partly echo, echo the what other the other panelists have said. So I think the, what the, what actually COVID did in a positive terms, uh, they made everybody move towards uh, the digital environment. Uh, and uh, 
even some of that might disappear after the COVID will stop uh, dominating our space, so a lot will stay. And this is often an area which is uh, occupied by the fintechs. Uh, so fintechs are definitely benefiting from this boosted uh, digital trend which COVID have brought. But I would also say that the traditional banks have made a, a big step forward uh, and they became more digital savvy and many of them have improved the way how they work with digitally, how they work with clients. Uh, and uh, and uh, it was partly out of the necessity, partly sometimes a little bit late, but it was something very much needed. And they have, you know, maybe there was a big space uh, 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 before, big gap. Now the, the gap is uh, in uh, many areas much smaller than it was actually before. Uh, so this is for me kind of, the increasing opportunity and the importance of the digital space, which will stay here after COVID. And it will just, uh, uh, we will just see, you know, how the fintech and traditional banks will continue to kind of occupy the space. And if the gap between the fintech and traditional bank will again widen as it was on many occasions in the past, or because of the COVID, the gap will actually become much smaller. And therefore, many of the fintechs will have a more, uh, let's say, appetite uh, uh, to cooperate with traditional banking. Thank you very much. And Jana Malachikova? Mm -hmm. I think COVID, I think COVID was a good, good opportunity for the fintechs that have been already made enough to go to the market. But I really believe that the real driver of the open banking, or let's say PSD2 in Europe, uh, is political. I believe that European uh, Commission or European Union decided to uh, adopt PSD2 and GDPR because it needs to solve its own problem and it's related to the uh, uh, to the fact that Europe is highly dependent on foreign payment providers. 80% of the retail payments in uh, in Europe are processed by two foreign payment institutions. We've been talking about the data. Uh, they are processed in different jurisdictions and it brings a lot of geopolitical risks for Europe. Um, one is that it costs Europe a lot. Retailers have to really pay a lot of money that our money drains to, to the other continents. Another thing is, uh, is our laws like GDPR cannot be enforced because these payments institutions are in different jurisdictions where the different um, laws are valid. And last but not least, in fact, it's the other jurisdictions that um, control the payment flows in Europe. And I think this is the main driver on the political level. And it should go down from the ministerial level to, to really to the end users, uh, to all European citizens to understand the situation and, uh, and take it as a geopolitical risk. So this is my, my, my thank you very point. much. Thanks all our panelists. Thank you all attendees and I wish you great rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank bye you. Bye-bye.